Are you ready to go offside? Because it's Offside Hockey Talk with your host, James Roberts. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with another installation of the Offside Hockey Talk. And we're sitting in today with my co-host, as always, Kyle Outridge. And we have a special guest on the line today. It is none other than former Maple Leaf and Sportsnet analyst Todd Warner. Todd, how's the day shaking out? Real good, boys. Good to be with you. And Kyle, how about you, buddy? How's everything? I'm doing well, boys. I'm, uh, you know, enjoying some nice weather and uh, some uh, exciting hockey action and a Leafs win the other night. So uh, all things are good right now. (laughs) We'll jump into that Leafs win in just a moment. But the man of the hour, the guest on the show, is Todd Warner. And I want to thank you very much for swinging by. I got to ask you, Todd, obviously this is a unique situation with these playoffs going in the way they are. Um, Have you been a fan and what's got you excited so far with everything going on on the ice? It's just just so crazy, isn't it, that uh, we're we're in August here and and we're watching all this hockey. I I mean, I don't know how you guys feel, but I'm exhausted (laughs) just trying to take it all in. But I think it's been great. I mean, I can't – I'm a little surprised at just how competitive – you know, the games have been this time of year and given the, you know, the doubt uh, even two months ago that this was going to happen. So I, it's been great. I mean, the series have been excellent. Even the, you know, the exhibition games for the teams waiting around has been, been competitive too. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure anybody thought it would be this this quick and this, uh, you know, competitive right out of the gate given the break. But, um, but it looks great. I mean, Know, no fans and all the things they've had to deal with. They've done a great job, and the players look like they're ready. So it's been uh, it's been great to watch. Too much to watch. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was it? They broke it down, uh, Kyle. It was if I think fifty-two games in nine days. Yeah, fifty-one games in nine days. Correct. That's right. That's absolutely oh, that's insane. Nuts. You know, a lot it's, a lot of it's viewing. Been, it's been nuts. It's been nuts to keep up with the schedule. That's for sure. Well, Todd, you know, having you on, obviously, you've been through some playoff battles yourself and done some things within hockey. I mean, this is a unique situation, but getting ready for the playoffs, obviously, most teams have the you know, stretch run and you're geared up and ready to go. What would you say would be different for these guys here where they had the layoff and then you know who you're going to play for a couple of months, but you don't actually get to get on the ice and do anything to tune yourself up against any squads and hone in your defense or get your offense humming? What kind of, um, I guess, mindset would these guys be going into a series like this? I mean, it's completely unique, but there's always, I guess, the mental aspect has to be there somewhere. Well, I'm sure they're, you know, mentally just geared right up to get going. You can tell out of the gate the fights and the density of the play. You know, the guys have been sitting around cooped up for a long time, like all of us, and and just uh, getting rid of some of that pent-up frustration. I'm sure it looked like that to, to me, at least, but... I think the biggest thing is just that everybody's healthy. You know, I mean, we've seen some injuries already, but you know, when you're, you know, when you're put together a team um, on paper, you know, this is what you get, this is what you hope for. You know, is everybody's healthy. I mean, every show talks about the man games lost throughout the season, the toll that takes on you when you're going into a playoff series at a regular time of year. Well, this is different. You know, everybody's healthy. 
when the season was called off. I mean, this is really a reset. We've seen some teams that maybe we'd written off uh, based on their play in March uh, who've, who've come out of the gate looking pretty good. So really, if you're a coach of a team, it's really the message, you know, like it's a restart for everybody at the playing field level. We're healthy, and, and let's see how we match up. Great. And Todd, uh, Kyle here, the co-host. I, I wanted to get your opinion on the uh, the playing on the, the round robin games. I guess you uh, you could call them. Um, how important do you think they'll be for the teams? You know that are technically just waiting around, waiting for the buys and waiting for the next round to begin. Um, how important it is is it for them to have those games to be able to get to get things worked out, uh, get guys in gear uh, instead of the guys like say like Toronto and Columbus who just had to jump into their series. What uh, what what effect do you think that has on those teams? Well, I think that, you know, you have to do it, right? Like, you can't sit around and watch the qualifier. So these teams, I mean, they maybe don't take on quite the same importance. So you can see the intensity levels uh, starting to ramp up as they go through them. But, you know, you can't, um, yeah, you can't, I feel like, it's like watching a World Cup of Hockey or, uh, you know, World Championships, Olympic Games. You know, the, the second week, the third week, things start to really happen. You know, like it's when you see the, the quality of play really improve, right? So so I feel like, uh, you know, if, if we haven't seen the past hockey yet in this first round, like the next round and sometime in the middle of that next round when things are really going to pick up and you're going to see the, the quality of play improve. Like normally you're going into a playoff in April and everybody's banged up. There's some lingering issues already from the regular season. So... You know, so oftentimes it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a battle of attrition. Who can stay relatively healthy the longest, get some breaks, and then and then and then keep going, get through, right? So now you got you got everybody healthy, and and things just start to ramp up, and, and um, so I think you know the, the playing games are important. I think you'll see the intensity of them pick up here in the next uh, you know couple few days, and they start to get ready for the second round. So it's just you got to do it. I mean. What do they mean? Not a whole lot in the whole scheme of things. I guess your your scheme might matter, but we've seen some teams play pretty well that weren't expected to win a game in either any of the qualifiers. So, uh, yeah, it's going to make for, you know, 10, 15 days down the road from now some pretty good competitive hockey. Well, yeah, definitely. I agree. Going into the, you know, going into this bubble situation here, a lot was made about these teams that are going to be sitting there cooling their heels. And I'm wondering, Todd, to, to follow up on Kyle's question, do these teams that are playing the play-in round where it's high intensity because you have to win to stay in, um, do you think they come out of that a little bit more battle-tested and a little bit more uh, with the engine fine-tuned than these guys that are playing these kind of, not meaningless, but seeding games to find themselves their spots? Do you think that these teams in the play-in have the engines going a little bit heavier and uh, on higher tune than these guys sitting playing these play-in games? I, I would I would say maybe, James. Like, I, I feel like you know we haven't seen all the, you know, the exhibition schedule yet, and I th- like I said, I think they'll get more intense as they get closer to the next round, but, you know, I I feel like if you can get through a qualifying series uh, relatively quick, it's like any other, you know, playoff series, if you can get through unscathed, you know, relatively healthy, and you get a little bit of rest, I think that's to your advantage, I feel like the first couple nights of the, the second round, you'll see the qualifying teams maybe with a little more... Uh, a little sharper just from playing, you know, more meaningful uh, games. Um, but at this point, again, I, you know, these other teams are playing games too. Uh, the training camps are the same, relatively speaking. Like the playing field level, like where, the, where they're staying is all the same. 
little bit of rest and you've played the, with the intensity that you'll need to play at, I mean, maybe that first couple of nights there'll be the, you, know, you would say you have a little bit of an advantage, but these teams that are are already in the second round are there for a reason. They're, they're, they're good teams from the regular season and have, I mean, all of them are, are battle-tested and have proven they're, they're legit. So I don't know what to say about that, really. It's a, it's a new a new playing ground, all included. So I'm not sure um, if that's the case, though. Yeah, it's definitely something new to look at, a new wrinkle thrown out there, and obviously this is new to everybody. Um, for yourself, going back to your playing career, obviously Toronto came out a little flat, and everybody has a flat game, whether it's in the regular season or the playoffs. And this is kind of unique, obviously. They didn't get to be on the ice. They didn't get to really get to feel the Columbus Blue Jackets until game one. Um, but that game was pretty much laying an egg for the Leafs. I'm wondering for you and your experiences, you know, when you come out flat, whether it's a regular season game or a playoff game, what is said by the coach to get you motivated for the next game? And is it just taking the information you took in from that game because obviously you don't just go out there and float around you're watching and you're looking and then you're watching the tape and figuring it out for the next stop but what gets said between games that can set the tone because the Maple Leafs came out completely different in game two but I want to focus on game one for just a second Todd what do you think would go into that game afterwards and would be said to the players to get their heads on straight for the next one well from what I watched I mean I feel like you know They've had lots of time to prepare for their opponent, like more than ever, right? So you know exactly what you're getting, and it, and it was pretty well documented what Columbus does well. And they check, they they um, defend the neutral zone hard. They're strong on the puck. They got to, you know, when they forecheck, um, they pick their spots, but they're pretty efficient at it. So I think, you know, I mean, the messaging, and I think it was what Sheldon Keith tried to relay was just, you know, we we, we knew what they were going to do, and that's exactly what happened. So you know, what are we going to do in response? So I think. They sort of figured out that they're going to have the puck a lot, and they're going to have room, especially in the top of the offensive zone. The defensemen have to be a little more active and, and and swing the puck out high and have some interchanges and do some things with the puck that maybe um, when they play down well below the hash marks against Columbus, I think their defense is so strong and physical that it, it wears on the on the leap forward. So once they get it in the in the Columbus zone, some movement and get activating the D and all those things that. I think they figured out in the second game uh, that works, and ultimately, like we all know, you got to you got to drive the puck into the dangerous areas to to have success and to get rebounds and get chances to score. So, so just recognize that you know you're going to have the puck a lot, and it may feel like you're not getting a whole lot done, and that's sometimes frustrating for players who are accustomed to getting lots of offense, like the lead forwards are. But I think um, you know just attacking their the house their defensive structure and, and driving the puck in there and, and taking lots of shots and, and just uh, just sticking with it, really. I mean, that's the thing. Like I feel like in game two they, they showed some resilience just in not getting frustrated that they couldn't score and just, uh, you know, shaking those shifts off and just trying to, you know, reboot and generate more and eventually it paid off. So I thought they made good adjustments and, uh, you know, possession time has always been a lead thing this year, especially uh, – they have the puck a lot, but just not getting uh, not getting down on themselves that the puck wasn't going in the net and just sticking with it. I thought they did that real well in game two. 
Yeah, and I wanted to follow up on a question there, James, for you, Todd. Um, how much does it affect your mindset? You know, players, you know, they, they always say that you, you can't let that the, the not being able to score and going so long without scoring a goal wear on you and, and get in your head. But how much, as a player and being in that position from time to time, how much does it wear on you? And what, what are the things that you see or you felt made, made, it, uh, made, it, made you able to, to shake that off and finally, you know, find the back of the net or help your teammates find the back of the net? Well, for the record, boys, I used to go long stretches without scoring goals. <laughs> we didn't want to bring that up, you know. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll get that out in the open right now. You know. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, listen, I play with lots of guys who love to score. And, and, you know, one of the things about guys who love to score is they don't like to go a long period without doing it. So that's been probably the biggest, you know, hurdle, I guess. And it's still early, but, you know, you look at the look at the roster for the Leafs. they got a lot of guys who love to have the puck and, and make plays and, and are used to getting rewarded for their work, right? So that's – when you play a team like that, and I, I can only really compare it. Like, we, I played in the dead puck trap area, and we used to play, you know, teams like New Jersey, and it was frustrating. Like, you, you had to dump the puck properly just to have a chance of getting it back or Brodeur shooting it out in the neutral zone and you're chasing again. So I can relate a little bit, and playing in Europe – you know, a lot of teams they don't forecheck as hard. They back up. There's so much extra space that they just they just back up and and live the fight in the neutral zone and then take their battles there. So so you have to come through the middle of the ice with speed. You have to have support off the puck and be willing to move it quickly and all those things. So but as a scorer, you want to get some some reward for the, the effort you put in. So that's probably the biggest thing with Sheldon is just hey boys, don't worry about the chances that we miss. Just keep generating those opportunities you're going to have to fuck a lot and just be creative and and stick with it and that's uh that's been you know that's a thing that sometimes it takes 30 year olds uh, you know time to, to recognize that so for this young group it's it's probably the biggest hurdle they're gonna they're gonna have to get through is um you know don't take unnecessary chances just because it's not paying off and and to stay stay the, the course and so the game two they did it it was a, it was a good effort and you could see that Columbus was reeling a little bit, just, uh, you know, the fact that some of their systems weren't really really working as well, and they were giving up a lot. So that was a good sign, and that's what the Leafs need to do. So just just stay with it. You know, uh, don't worry about the chances you miss. Keep generating more. Well, you look at the Maple Leafs in Game 2, and something that I noticed a lot, and I don't know if you've seen this, Todd or Kyle, is um, I saw a lot more board play, a lot more uh, battling, a lot more infighting with them, you know, actually grinding it out to get the puck and retrieving the puck and, you know, not just giving up as soon as it was dumped in and Columbus would clear it out like game one. It seemed more game two, they were more aggressive on the puck and ready to go. And um, just coming across the wire here, boys, to let you know, Jake Muzzin will not be available for the Toronto Maple Leafs for the remainder of the Columbus Blue Jackets series. Uh, he's out with an injury, so that hurts them right there. Uh, unfortunately for Jake, uh, he will be with the team at the hotel, and he will stay in quarantine, so hopefully he's available for the next round if the Maple Leafs do progress. But um, to, to touch on Game 2 just a little bit more, obviously, like I said, they had that grinded style, and it looked like they were ready to go in the trenches and go to war, uh, much like Berkey always says on Sportsnet. I'm wondering for you guys, did you guys see that more? And obviously with the uh, the puck retrieval, it, it led to more chances. And a guy that I'm wondering about is Mitch Marner. You see the graphics. You know, you're just speaking about not forcing the play to make something happen. That's a guy that hasn't scored now. I think it's six playoff games. Um, obviously that may weigh in his psyche just a little bit. But um, do you see Mitch bouncing back there, Todd? And I'll let that go to Kyle, too. And um, as the team as a whole, obviously without Muzzin, you have to grind it a little bit harder. 
Um, wondering, do we see that game three, and do we see anybody trying to get a little retribution for for Muzzin? Obviously, it wasn't that dirty of a hit, but you never know. Guys get it in their mind. You saw Clifford's face on the bench. He wasn't too happy. Uh, a lot to to uh, unpack there, but Todd, what do you think? Well, going back to the forecheck, just I think you know the, the Leafs. That's not one of their strengths. Their, their puck retrieval is not really something that you would say they're forward. Aside from maybe you know Hyman and, and um, you know Freddie Gochi, some of these guys with the bigger bodies can get in there and, and retrieve the pucks. But I think the message is you know once we do get it back, boys, we have all kinds of time to make plays. So they'll build this Columbus team like. You know, John Tortorella is a coach like this for years. I played for him. It's the same thing. You collapse and you stay in lanes and you don't get overextended. So if the, if if you if you choose to forecheck and you're willing to get the puck back in their end, then you're going to have time to make plays and do things that you wouldn't normally do. So that's the motivation. Like, hey, if we got to dump it or we got to chip it in and chase it, well, let's do whatever we can, whatever we can to get it back because they're going to give you then space to make your thing, make plays and do your thing. So. So I would say that's a huge thing. Marner, you know, Marner, I think, started to come. I saw some good things. In game one, I thought he did a few things that were uncharacteristic of him, just trying to maybe force the play like we talked, trying to make something out of nothing. Um, game two, I thought he was better. As far as the goals, I mean, they're looking for him to make plays, and, and I, I thought it was a nice move to put him with Matthews because then he just, you know, sort of isolates what he does best, and that's find guys that are open get chances and so I think he was good and getting better in game two and um, it would be good to see him get one just to feel better but I think he's playing well and, and, and doing fine and the Muzzin injury I mean that's a big loss in my interpretation I was watching that happen and I thought wow that, that was strange and I thought it was his leg at first and then you could see his, the, the, the video and and him shaking his feet and shaking his hands as if to say I can't I'm trying to get feeling back in my extremities which was you know that's obviously you know a telltale sign of some kind of neck or nerve problem and so I, I said wow stay down and don't move and then they of course they put him on the board so that's a huge loss he's a big part of just their defending and their physical play just sort of the elements that make it hard on their forwards so um We'll see what happens with that. But I didn't think it was dirty in any way at all. I mean, it's a push from behind. Maybe, you know, it's, it's clear of the boards. For the most part, it's just a freak thing. It runs into somebody's leg. And and so um, we'll see what happens. I hope we get to see Rasmus Sandin. We talked about this uh, quite, a, quite a lot, that he's not even taking the warm-ups or anything. So I thought he would be a player that they would use more. And it sounds like Marincin maybe would be the guy to come in because I know he's been dressing for a warm-up to this point. So... Yeah, lots there, but um, for the most part, I just think, um, you know, they've learned, the Leafs have learned that once they get the puck back, they're going to have a lot more freedom to do their thing in the, in the offensive zone, and that was pretty evident in game two. Yeah, and, I, and I'll piggyback that, and, and we'll start, and I'll start with the Marner, Marner and, and his, I guess, lack of scoring, but uh, like, like Todd referred to as well, game one, uh, it was evident uh, he was they, that whole line um, was just, uh, you know, invisible. You didn't see them. Um, they weren't generating. Uh, they weren't. They were not doing. They were doing uncharacteristic things, uh, uh, like Todd said. Game two, much better game from Marner. I felt uh, he would get a lot more open space. Uh, he was doing, you know, finding players, uh, getting shots off, uh, generating chances, uh, doing things off of his speed and with uh, with his skill set that he does best. 
Uh, I agree. Having him with Cappy was nice. Seeing him with uh, with somebody that can match his speed and can react like he can, I think, really helped him. And uh, I, I think I think as we continue on, Marner's going to start finding his spot and, and finding finding the back of the net and and really find and coming back into his form that we we know Marner to be. Um, as for the Muzzin injury, uh, like just. Uh, a, a big hit, a big blow to the Leafs. Uh, I get like when you're you're starting to get some momentum and you're coming on to uh, and especially when it happened at the end of a game, you know, all the momentum's high and and and, and then for that to happen, um, like Todd said, I didn't see anything vicious. Uh, it wasn't until I seen the re- replay that I, I really noticed the extent of what happened and and his head snapping back and uh, like Todd referred to and I and I talked to you about this as well, James. Uh, you know, him seeing him shake his feet and, and then, you know, laying back down and not saying no, every hockey player isn't a tough guy because you got to be a tough guy to be in, in that sport and want to want to get smashed around all game long. But, um, you know, Muzzin's a guy that's going to get back up if he's able to get back up. And uh, to see him lay back down and then be, be taken off on the board was uh, was pretty tough. And I'm sure it's uh, not something the Leafs are looking forward to dealing with going forward. And having that news come across, um, it does leave a big hole for the Leafs. Um, here we go with the uh, the blue line issues again. It seems it bites us every time, no matter what we do and how well we're doing. And uh, I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be time for the for the for the guys to step up, right? So it's next man up, and uh, there's no time to make excuses. You got to step up here, and we're gonna have to see guys like Marincin step in, and he's gonna have to play a big role. And there's gonna be no uh, no hiding him. So you're gonna have to fill that void, and uh, hopefully we get Muzzin back sooner rather than later. But uh, Definitely a heartbreaker for the momentum going forward, but uh, I think the boys will uh, will keep riding the momentum, and uh, now we got to fight for Muzzin as well. So uh, things uh, we'll see how things go in Game Three. Before we uh, before we move on to obviously who they may bring into the lineup, obviously there was I think it was Chris Johnson who put it out last night. You know, the rink is quiet without fans, but when Muzzin was down, you could really feel the impact of the silence within the rink. Uh, was definitely quiet. All the players on the knee watching Muzzin getting take off on the stretcher. Uh, absolutely horrible. Obviously, good to hear that he's back at the hotel. Hopefully, on the mend and maybe back for the Maple Leafs. Um, Todd, I gotta ask. You know, there is always a, a story that goes for certain teams. They always have a rallying cry. Philly this year, they have Oscar Lindbaum. You know, going through the the uh, the cancer and obviously beating it, ringing the bell. Last year, you had the St. Louis Blues. You know, they did it for their their little girl that they cheered for the entire way through, and it pushed them. And that was a rallying cry. Um, not to say that you know Muzzin's on the same level as those two, but is this a momentum thing the Leafs can use? You know, you know, do it for Muzz, buzz for Muzz. Is that something you guys were doing? You know, during your run, something happened within the team that you use as a, a rallying point and as a pushing point? Sure. I mean, at this point, you, you, you attach yourself to whatever motivates you, you know, and uh, we don't know the extent of it, but for him to not be playing says that there's something up, right? So, you know, I tell a story when I was playing junior hockey in Windsor at the Spitfires, um, I came in with a, a rookie named Corey Stillman. You guys know that guy, two-time Stanley Cup winner. He's coaching now in the Subway Wolves. So Corey took a runner to guy in the old Windsor barn and, and missed him. The guy submarined him, and he went right into the boards and hit the top of his head sort of halfway up the board. And he got up, and he everybody's like, you all right? And he's like, he was fine, and he skated off and, and went to the dressing room. Well, it turns out he had a broken neck. And, you know, given the, the you know, what we know now about spinal injuries and things like that, it was, you know, he's so lucky to have gotten gotten through all that and not had any more damage. But so he cracked a vertebrae in his neck and he had some tingling in his feet and hands. And so every time I see that, I just I just think, wow, that guy's moving around 
or you let me stay still, we're getting divorced, was was great to see because you know the damage that can happen from something like that. So, so listen, I, I think the least, if we're going to find out more of the extent of the injury, obviously, and it's good to know that he may or may not be available and he's still in the bubble for later, but at this point, if the least, um, need something to hang their hat on, that would be great because if you know what this guy means to the team and you could tell by the looks on not just the Leaf faces but the Columbus Blue Jacket faces too that they were concerned and so it says that there was something uh, more serious happening there. No, definitely. Well, complete class by the Columbus Blue Jacket organization, obviously the stick taps, but even afterwards on social media, just sending out their well wishes to Jake Muzzin. So it's all class. I mean, hockey is a family. You you go to battle on the ice, you, you know, you fight for points, you fight for the cup, you fight for wins, but you know, when something happens, everybody rallies around and makes sure they're okay. So that's a, a good thing. And you're right, you know, something to hang your hat on and push forward. So hopefully, uh, like we just said, you know, hopefully Muzzin's okay. Everything ever goes well and he does get back on the ice with this team if they do make it past Columbus. But speaking of that void, I mean, obviously you're pushing for Sandine. A lot of fans are as well. It's weird we haven't seen him. Timothy Lilligren is also in the bubble, just deemed unfit to play. Callie Rosen is there. Um, but Marty Marinson, for whatever reason... Gets his nine millionth chance with the Toronto Maple Leafs. It doesn't seem to work for whatever reason. Great at the AHL level, but for whatever reason, when it comes to the NHL, whether it's just the speed is just that little bit more fast for him, and he can't, you know, digest the play or break it down the same way. I'm wondering, Todd, in your eyes, why would they go to Marty Marinson over a younger Rasmus Sandin? I know experience is a thing, but obviously Sandin has a speed, has shown he can play under pressure, can move the puck, can do all those little things that you would want him to do to get the puck out of his own zone. Um, why a Martin Marinson, in your your opinion? Because that looks to be the way the Leafs are leaning. Well, I mean, you got to remember your, your opponent. So what's Columbus known for? They check, they battle, they, their forwards get after you on the forecheck. they got pretty good size, at least, you know, guys that play physically and are aggressive. So, I mean, that would be, in my estimation, why you wouldn't play Sandine or why, you, you know, maybe you wouldn't play Lilligren. They're young and, and maybe that uh, relentless sort of forechecking pressure from Columbus is something that they're not sure they can deal with. And Marincin being a bigger guy, he can maybe absorb some of that a little bit better. So that would be probably the thinking in my estimation. Now, given what we've seen in game two, especially, you know, this Columbus team, we talk about, you know, having the top of the offensive zone to do whatever you want, right? So because their forwards collapse so much. So when players bring the puck up high, when Austin Matthews swings the puck out high or Mitch Marner carries the puck out high and there's interchanges with their defensemen, when you see... Morgan Riley or Tyson Berry, whomever jumping down into the zone, that's that's to me what Sandine does best. And so I think to myself, well, okay, yeah, maybe he's not going to be as equipped as Marincin to absorb the forechecking pressure that comes with that, but we saw, you know, nine, ten minutes of possession time in period in game two for the Leafs in their zone. So that's a that's a impressive number. So so if they, you know, if you think about activating the D and interchanges with the forwards using that high part of the zone to, to create offense and have people jumping into holes and making it difficult on their wingers, well, Sandine would be my first choice. You know, I think Rosen's actually pretty equipped with that too, and he's had some experience too, and I thought he played some pretty good games down down the stretch before the season was canceled, uh, Kelly Rosen. So if, if that's what you're looking for, you want to you wanna double down on what you do and what you've had success uh, within the second game, then maybe Sandine's your guy because I feel like he would be really good at just those interchanges at the top, tight rope in the 
blue line and, and create an offense uh, with his legs. So um, it's a it's a debate, I guess. Marincin being the more experienced guy and a bigger body, but um, if you want to sort of accentuate what was successful in game two, maybe Sandin's your guy. Kyle, what's your thoughts very quick on this one? Well, I mean, we've already talked about it before on previous episodes. Uh, Sandin for me all day. I mean, uh, the, the kid, like, like Todd said, his versatility and what he can offer for the rest of the lineup, for the rest of the Leafs lineup, um, I mean, it, it's it, there's more pros than there is cons to it. Um, I mean, yes, he's a little bit smaller, um, whatever the experience, whatever you want to say. Uh, but, I mean, have you seen, like, when you watch Sandy, he's not afraid to get in the corner and hit. He's not afraid to go in and, and run somebody into the board. So, I mean, at the end of the day, when he, when it comes down to it, what do you want? You want the versatility. You want to be able to, you know, not have to, you know, I guess, hide somebody's lack of a skill set to be able to, you know, make him flourish in other areas. When you can bring in Sandy in and just let him go in and, and let him play, I mean, I, I don't see why you would not give him a chance. It's been unfortunate that... You know, he hasn't been uh, out for warm-ups and, and, I guess, skating it, uh, with the team as much. Uh, I'd like to see him get a little more of a shot. But, I mean, unfortunately, in my eyes, it looks like Marincin's going to be the first up to get the shot. Um, but, I mean, I, 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 I'm with Todd as well. I mean, I, I, I would be going with Rasmus all the way. So, so i got to ask, boys, and Todd will ask you this one first. We've seen the Jekyll and Hyde act so far with the Toronto Maple Leafs Game 1. Columbus deployed their system to perfection. Game two, Toronto made adjustments under Sheldon Keefe, something that wouldn't be done under the Babcock era, and they had success. Now that this series is 1-1, it's a best of three. Uh, Todd, in your eyes, what team has the better chance of keeping the implementation of their system? Is it Columbus with game one, or is it Toronto now that they figured out how to get around it? <laughs> I wish I had an answer for you. <laughs> I, like, I, I, I like... Uh... I like what Toronto did in the second game. They made some adjustments, and they kind of stuck with what they do well, and it paid off. So I think the biggest maybe thing is just, we talked earlier, just psychologically getting to the goal center, getting to corporate solid, looked so good in game one, and and finding a way, and it's the big boys too. You know, you get Tavares, you get uh, Matthews, get to score goals, and, and that's big. So I think it couldn't you know, um, happen to two better guys that kind of carry the bulk of the load offensively. So the only thing is maybe Marner getting Marner off the side and getting him a goal. But just getting to the goalie, psychologically getting through that what you know was built up for so long as this defensive juggernaut that just stifles you and, and makes it frustrating for you to get through. I think that's huge. So um, I like to take the Leafs to keep it going. Now, here's another thing I, I've come to learn is that, you know, when you play your third game in the same rink in the same day, no matter if there's fans or not, the ice is bad. Yep. It is bad. And whether you believe it or not, it is August, and, you know, there's no fans in the building. You don't have to open the door, so the quality of ice is probably generally better than it normally would be in any August, but there is three games in one day. And so if you're playing the late game and you're a skilled team like the Leafs and you want to have a nice smooth sheet to make your plays and do your thing, well, it may not exist, right? So I think that could come into it, and, and it's, it's a small thing. I mean, People will say, well, if you're Columbus, you want the ice to be as bad as you can. And then you muck it up and you play along the boards and you disrupt and, and that suits your style. Well, if you're Toronto, you probably want it to be nice and smooth and, and make clean clean plays coming out of the zone and do all the things you, you do so well. So that might be a factor too. And so I think the Leafs, 
probably feel really good about where they're at right now, especially getting to the goalie and the fact that they were to execute and, and outshoot them so so uh, extremely. And then possession time, all the things they had in offensively that they did so well. But at some point in this series, when they're playing the later games, and we've seen the puck bouncing around late at night, I just think it might be an issue for a team that has you know such a skill level. They require a clean you know, sheet of ice to do their thing. And so that might play into it as well. And Columbus might feed on that. Who knows? <laughs> Kyle, what's your thoughts, buddy? Well, I mean, it, look, first of all, I, I mean, like I said, it, it was nice to see Matthews get on the board and it was nice to see Tavares get on the board. And it was nice to see them all getting around the net and, and generating those chances in the slot, uh, something we didn't see almost any of in game one. Um, I mean, for the most part, it, it's, it's just you got to you got to grind it out and, and stay the course. I mean, the Leafs didn't didn't veer off their path their, and their game plan uh, last night when playing. Um, I mean, they they stuck with it. Uh, like Todd said, going back to the ice. I mean, people are going to say, well, the ice is the ice, and it's pretty good nowadays, and they got all the systems. I mean, I, I played hockey, and anybody's played hockey who knows and played in a tournament. The ice is garbage after a few games. It doesn't matter. Um, and like and like they, a skilled team, they want to have that flat puck, and you've seen it in, in, the, in the last game, in game two there, that puck that kind of skipped on Tavares, and he didn't get all the wood on it, and Corpus Allo made a great save. I mean, it's just things like that, those little things that you don't think could, uh, could you know, you know change the, the course of a game or have an effect on the game. Um, and it does have a big effect, and, and it does benefit to uh, Columbus's style, you know, run it up the boards, run it down your throat, let Seth Jones beat you up in the corner, and, and we're in key, and, and they'll, they'll beat you with Dubois and the boys on the front, right? So, um, I mean, it's tough for the Leafs, but it's something you got to work through. It's uh, nice to see that they were finally generating those chances from the middle of the ice, um, not sticking to the Columbus style of being outside and playing into their strengths. Um, it was nice to see them playing behind the net and, and just getting the defense in that whole Columbus, uh, you know, shrink down style to, to move and stretch apart. And it, it clearly, it, it clearly worked. And it was, uh, you know, it was up to Corpus Allo at that point. And eventually, I mean, no, no, no matter how good a goalie is, you're going to find a hole eventually, right? So, um, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty goals that got it done, but it was, you know, we, we generated off the rush. That Matthews goal off the rush was, uh, was a perfect perfect example right you know just get the puck to the middle of the ice get a stick on it and, and good things happen so um i mean all signs are going up for the Leafs. they they clearly figured it out the uh, the tweaks have worked but you know columbus is going to come back with a bigger with, with with more changes and we're just going to have to adapt so um definitely good for the boys to get feeling good though um nice to see them get on the score sheet and uh now we just got to get a couple of the other boys on there and we'll be good to go now i got to ask the last question on this series before we touch on your career there, Todd. Uh, obviously, games three and four are back-to-backs. Weird thing to have going on. Even if it is a play-in, it's still the playoffs considerable for these teams to keep going. Um, Todd, in, in your career, when you played a back-to-back, uh, was the first game easier or was the second game easier or was basically both the same? And then i got to ask both of you this question for that. Do you go with Freddie Anderson for both games or do you split it Jack Campbell, Freddie Anderson. Well, I never played back-to-backs in the playoffs. That's a new thing. And so, I mean, I understand why. That's the five. They, they condense it a little bit. So, I mean, that's that's a unique thing. That's going to, you know, the guys, you're probably going to see some sloppy play and there's going to be some fatigue. And who that favors more, I don't know. Like, I mean, I feel like to this point, Columbus has used their bench more than Toronto. Right, we've seen Matthews, you 
know, play upwards of 23 minutes the first night or whatever it was. So I think, you know, if it becomes, you know, which team is, you know, been using their bench most effectively, it might favor Columbus. And if the game gets tired and it gets a little messy, I think, like we talked before, it might favor Columbus. But, again, I mean, I feel like the Leafs have made some inroads into how they can pick them apart. So if they can keep the puck and, and stretch them out and do their thing like they did last game, then they might favor them. But as far as the goaltender, it's a no-brainer for me. I think Freddie's been that good. I mean, you talked about the Atkinson goal as the one, one blip on the radar for him to this point. I think he's been real sharp. And, and I don't think, given the, the time away and the shortness of training camp and all the things that have happened, I don't think there's any reason for fatigue. That was a conversation we had about Freddie last Christmas Day, yep. when everybody felt they needed rest, but I think you ride him right through, and, and um, there's no reason to go go otherwise. What do you say, Kyle? Yeah, I, no, and I, and I fully agree there too. I, I I'm riding Freddie, um, especially with uh, with how he's been playing in the first two games. Um, I mean, he's been absolutely a brick wall, and I mean, how, how do you how do you take him out of the crease at this point unless he has to be out of it? And I don't see him doing that. So. Um, Freddie's always been vocal in saying he wants to play, and he wants to play every game he can. So, I mean, you ride him, and, and it's no time to uh, to take away from your from your top guys, right? I mean, this is the time you got to ride them as long as you can. And um, I mean, nothing against Jack Campbell; he's an amazing backup goaltender, and, and and one we're lucky to have. But at this point, you, you can't take Freddie out of the crease. He's been stellar, and I and I ride him all the way through as well. So, um, hopefully, he can keep it up, and uh, we we can't keep we can't waste any of those opportunities. No, I, I call it Steady Freddy for a reason. So, you know, when I do those little videos before the game, he's definitely the guy that got, you have to have locked in. And Like you said there, Todd, he's let that one goal in by Atkinson. If, if that's the only blip on his radar right now, obviously the guy is hot. But, you know, there's always talking points. Everybody has them for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And everybody said, well, you know, if Freddy struggles because everybody's worried about him during camp. So you look at the back-to-back and you say, do you play another guy? But, no, I'm with you guys. I ride Freddy right to the end. He's your, he's your workhorse. He loves to be in that crease. So I'm hoping for good things for the Maple Leafs and him and beyond. Uh, but, Todd, i got to ask you the question. I mean, you were drafted not too long ago, only 1992, you know, uh, fourth overall, <laughs> you know, just a couple years ago, you know, just around the corner. But in, in your eyes, my friend, I mean, when you started into the game and being drafted fourth overall, up until now, what is the biggest change that you've seen, you know, in the evolution of hockey, whether it be off the ice, on the ice, the way the guys train, whatever it is, what is the one thing that always sticks out in your mind from when you started till now? Oh, well, I mean, just probably, you know, just how prepared, I guess, how prepared they are when they're young. You know, like we do, we, I do the sports net broadcast and the prospects game every year with Jeff Merrick and Colby, and, and um, we just sort of marvel at how, you know, polished the kids are at such a young age. I mean, I, was, I feel like I, you know, I could have, I could, you know, handle myself in a conversation, and I did all the interviews leading up to the draft and those things too, but just the exposure that these kids get now with, you know, social media and the coverage of, of youth hockey, they're just so ready for the experience of getting drafted in the NHL, and, and, and they know uh, well in advance what to expect. They have, you know, advisors and agents and nutritionists and, and, and um, you know, uh, sports psychologists, all these things at their disposal, and they all take full advantage 
just feel like, you know, every year we, you know, we interview these kids and sometimes we sit in on some of the, you know, uh, Sam Cosentino sometimes or RJ Broadhead will, uh, will interview the kids at the, at the prospect game. We'll get to sit in on, you know, hours of just, you know, sort of random talks and they talk about their team and their, you know, who influenced them the most and those things. And they're all, they're all just so ready for that. You know, there's nothing surprising them. So I, I just feel like, you know, the biggest, you know, the, the product on the ice is so much faster and better and so much more depth at all levels of hockey, I feel like. There's so much more talented players like now, but they're also, they also know what to expect and they know how to prepare themselves and they're also way, way farther ahead in their development, it appears, at least uh, at a younger age. So I, I feel like, you know, when I came in, <laughs> just to go back again, like I came in, we worked out a little bit. Like I, 92, I was working out, you know, once a week with my team in Windsor. We'd go to a local gym and we do, sometimes we do aerobics, sometimes we play racquetball or, you know, like just, you know, it wasn't really like formal workouts. And so, but I, I, I took care of myself. I was, you know, I, I played other sports. I was in good shape generally, but I didn't know all the fine, finer details of fitness and psychology and all those things. And that's stuff that I kind of, uh, were new and being introduced as I played throughout my career, but I just I just find it like every year we sit there and we listen to these kids talk and we just like, well, you know, that kid's got it all together. Like they don't have any any worries. <laughs> They're just so so polished, so polished and so uh, you know prepared for what's ahead. And I, I think that helps in their you know adjustment to pro hockey wherever it may be. And, and um, that's for me the biggest change. I just feel like they're they're all. Um, Yeah, and Todd, I wanted to follow up on a question there, and uh, something you kind of you kind of touched on as you were answering that question there from James. Um, but you know, everybody asks, and you get it always in those uh, those tournaments when you're a kid. What got you into hockey, there, Todd, and uh, what drove you to uh, to want to play in the NHL? Well, I mean, I was a rink rat. Like I, I say, tell people, why, you know, I grew up in a small town, and my mom was a figure skating coach. My dad played some like senior hockey. He was a pretty good player, good athlete. And, so I, you know, when I would go from from school, uh, I'd walk across the, the street to the arena, and my mom would be on the ice teaching teaching figure skating with some of her students. And so I was always kind of milling around the rink, and I was one of those kids. You know, I'd go watch the midget team play, or I'd go watch the junior team play. And so my, and we would, uh, as a family, we would rent the ice on Wednesday morning. So like all my relatives and stuff, we just had an hour of ice on Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. and we would go out and skate and just shoot the ball around and play and and uh, then we'd all go to school, right? So that was sort of like my introduction to it. And, and uh, my mom taught power skating for the local minor hockey system. She had a whole development program back in the 80s. And, and um, you know, my dad and some of his closest friends um, were who started the minor hockey program here in town. So I had coaches that played college hockey, some professional hockey, even in a small town. And um, so I had, I had, you know, the best of all worlds. Like I had a figure skating mom who taught me how to skate, and I had coaches who played uh, Division One college hockey, and who came back and and um, and gave their time to the minor hockey system, both in uh, as executives and as coaches. And and so. Uh, it was easy. We had a group of kids that were, were, you know, good athletes who loved to play the game and took advantage of any and all lifetime that was extra. And, and so um, I, was a, I was one of those kids. My, my sister figure skated, so I was at the rink watching that a lot. And, and then um, I played on some teams in minor hockey that went season. 
and we're right into it. Well, one of the teams you did get to play for during your NHL career, and it's you know centric around this podcast, the Toronto Maple Leafs. What was it like playing underneath Pat Quinn and playing with guys like Jonas Hoagland, Matt Sundin, Sergey Bearsen, uh, you know, having Curtis Joseph between the pipes? What was it like in Toronto and obviously underneath the big Irishman? Well, to be to be fair, I might, you know the guy who gave me my chance was Pat Burns, and so I played for both Pats, and they were they were they were awesome. Both of them different in some ways, but similar in, in a lot of ways too, right? So, but I was a young guy playing in the Rock. I was in the minors, and Pat uh, Burns, uh, if you guys remember, well, you know he he um, he loved to have veteran teams. And I watched the Toronto '92 three four teams play in the playoffs, and they were veteran guys and and a tough lineup, and they played a certain way. And so I wasn't sure. As a young player, when I got traded with Matt from Quebec, that I was going to be in the plans. You know, like I, I knew I knew Pat was tough and wasn't wasn't always warm to young guys, <laughs> to say the least. So I, I knew I, I knew I had to win him over, and it was it was uh, it was tough. I spent a year in the minors, hurt and pl- trying to play and just trying to get my foot in the door. But he gave me a chance in October of '95, and I got I got a chance to play a uh, stretch of games. And, uh, you know, I learned real fast that it was a big boy game. Like, I, I, was, a, I was a junior kid who could skate and try to and score, and I didn't think a lot about defending and, and all that stuff. And Pat was pretty adamant that we were going to check and, and uh, play like the Columbus Blue Jackets. You know what I mean? So it was a good lesson for me because I feel like if I didn't, if I didn't learn that from, from Pat and from guys like Doug Gilmore and Wendell, guys like guys that were in Toronto at the time when I watched and played, then I probably wouldn't have had as long a career. You know what I mean? Like I had to, it's sort of like baptism by fire. So he gave me a chance to play and I got my foot in the door. And then when Pat Quinn came, um, I think we all, we all played for a couple of years, three years and kind of the dead buck era. Again, everybody was checking and trapping and doing things that, that, uh, that the successful teams are doing to win. That's why everybody played at the Copycat League. So that's why how we were playing. And when Pat came, Pat Quinn came, I think we were all a little surprised. He, I can remember the first meeting like it was yesterday. He's like, we're not playing like that. You know, I see your team and I've watched you guys from afar and, and I know you have talent and you guys want to play and skate and do your thing out there. I'm not going to make a check and be something you're not. And I thought, wow, that's exactly what we want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So first, first we, you know, we added we added Curtis Joseph, and then we added um, Steve Thomas, and we, we we added some good players, so Sylvain Cote to our lineup, Brian Berard that were you know offensive minded people, and, and having Cujo just um, I say he was like our, our you know like your granddad back there. He was just such a great role model and a good example, and nothing phased him and. And he wanted us to play offensive too, and, and turn it up. And he liked to ball, he liked to get lots of shots. So we're like, well, we're just gonna we're just gonna keep skating and, and generate chances. We played a lot like the modern Leafs, to be fair. And so Pat, but Pat wanted that. He's like, no, we'll, we'll play a system and we'll play play it as tight as we can. But once we get the puck back, you guys do whatever you want. And so we had a bunch of guys that were kind of stifled in the prior systems that were maybe playing a style they didn't really want to play and he just freed us up he freed us up to do our thing and uh and we went right to the conference finals you know that year so so the paths were great for me like i feel like to be honest if i, if I didn't have pat burns i'm not sure i have a long career because he taught me that you're going to need to do some things that you've not even considered and so i did those things just to get my foot in the door and that helped me be a more well-rounded player later but 
I always say, like, he he just had a way of, uh, you know, first of all, when Pat Quinn walks into a room, walked into a room, I mean, he, he just had your attention. He was just one of those people. And it was also because he was a big man and he had a presence about him, but he just he just had a soft-spoken kind of calming effect on the group. And I always think now when I'm a coach, like, what do you want to have when you when you walk into a dressing room or you've had a tough period or you're gearing up for a big game? Like, do you want what do you want from a coach? You know, and I always say like, just simplify the objective. Like, what what is it that we need to really be thinking about um, to get get ready to play a certain opponent on a given night? Pat was really good at identifying what we need to do: three things, two things, simple, and go out and get it done, boys. And I always thought that's the, that, that was really good for me who, and a lot of young players who have a lot of things going on in their head before a game. You know what I mean? Like you're thinking about, oh, this guy, I'm going to be matched up with that guy. You're, you know, their, their goal center, he lit in this goal last night. Am I going to shoot here? Like, what, you know, what's going to happen? Like, what's, what's the, the dynamic? There's a lot happening sometimes. Maybe maybe in my head more than some. <laughs> but I always thought when Pat, when Pat took over, Pat took over in a, in a tough market where there's a lot of noise around the Toronto Maple Leaf, man, did he, did he narrow down what he needs to be thinking about? I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, some some amazing insight there. But Todd, uh, before we before we let you go and we get out of here, I def, we'd, be, uh, we'd be crazy not to ask, what's it been like for you uh, transitioning to the broadcasting side of, of hockey and sports in, in general? Um, and when did you, uh, find, I guess, realize that that broadcasting might be for you? Well, I mean, I, I've enjoyed it. I, I, I didn't really... Uh, I mean, I tell people I don't, I don't. I didn't really think this would be my thing. I, I, I always thought I'd stay in hockey. I, I, you know, since I was a kid, we kind of told the stories of my some of my coaches and people I played for in my life. You know, I always thought I'd like to coach, and we've run a hockey school here for years, and I've coached youth teams, and I had my own training uh, facility for hockey when I first retired that I worked at for a number of years, and I loved that part of it, like the skill development, and you know, especially with the youth players I really enjoy still, but, um, you know, it kind of came sort of innocently enough, I, I was like, you guys remember me, I, I didn't, I wasn't one to, to talk uh, a lot when I played, I didn't seek out the camera for any reason, really, but, but, um, you know, I took a, the NHL Alumni Association offered a course, it was probably my second year retired, so maybe 2012 or so, and I took this course on broadcasting, and it was down at Ryerson University. There was about a dozen guys there, and and um, I can't remember our instructor. She's a professor at the at the Ryerson Broadcast School, and and we did on-the-spot interviews. We had a makeshift panel, and we did sort of just a weekend uh, course through the NHL alumni, and just sort of laid out what it would be like to be um, in broadcasting. So I, I didn't. I did it on a whim because a couple of my buddies were taking it, so I thought it would be a good idea. And I had friends like Glenn Healy and and uh, Nick Kiprios, Mike Johnson, Kevin Weeks that were all uh, former teammates of mine in the industry. And, and so I thought, well, I'm going to give it a shot. i got nothing else to do this summer. I can take a weekend and, and do it. And, and so I did. And, and um, from there, I did Battle of the Blades. I was a figure skater for a few months, and I was doing uh, Monday – Monday interviews on a local radio station with a friend of mine named Chris McLeod, um, who's a morning show host here in Chatham. 
And so Chris would call me on Mondays and say, hey, tell me about the show last night on Battle of the Blades. And so we chat, and I knew Chris uh, sort of in passing. We weren't really buddies, but it was, we kind of caught up like that. So, of course, he gets interviewed for the Spitfire play-by-play job, Windsor Spitfire play-by-play job, and then he calls me on a Wednesday in April and says, um, hey, I got interviewed for the job. I kind of left your name with them. What do you think? And I said, well, I never. So would I be the color guy for the Spitfires and work with him? So I think I was just, I say I was just fresh in Chris's mind because we've done these Monday interviews on a regular basis, and and he called me out of the blue and said, you expect a call from from Kojiko in Windsor, and they're going to call you about the, being the color guy for the Spitfires. And I said, okay, well, I, I've never done that, but I can try it. <laughs> so that's how it happened. And so I, yeah, we jumped into that. I, I guess that was 2012 or 13. I can't even really remember now. But we started doing the, the play-by-play, and I tell a story. The very first game, it was eerily similar to last night with Jake Muzz, and we had a pane of glass go out. And you guys know, like, so you, you can plan for some things during a game, and you always have notes on players and and, and for for a color guy, you like to have sort of inside stories on the on the players where they're from or something that's happened recently that's it's an engaging part of the game. But so, painted glass breaks. It's our first game together, so Chris and I are both nervous. You can imagine painted glass breaks, and, and it takes 12, 12 minutes to fix it. Right? You know, they bring out the guys, they get the the, the ladder out, they got to fix it. So we're trying to kill air time because we're on the air and. And we're telling stories. So I tell a story about when I was a rookie. So Chris says, hey, uh, you know, just grasping his straws. He says, hey, tell me about your first game. Right? So, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I tell the story where I'm on the, I'm on the bus. As a rookie, I'm on the bus. And then we're driving up to North Bay. And I said, well, when I was a rookie, it's a funny story. I was, you know, I was, the guys were playing a prank on me game one. So I actually thought it wasn't game one. We played Thursday night. The next morning we got on the bus to go to North Bay, seven or eight hours bus drive. So I'm sitting at the front of the bus, rookie, 16 years old, and the guys all got together and said, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna play a prank on this rookie. So they came up, all the veteran guys, every hour on the hour, they come up and say, hey, Toddy, uh, uh, just so you know, there's a guy in North Bay. His name is Casey Jones, and he is an absolute killer. This guy's a lunatic. So, and... For some reason, this guy, Toddy, every year he wants to kill the first rounder. No matter what team he plays against, he wants to get the first rounder. He's going to come after you. So I'm like, holy shit, like, these guys are, what are these guys talking about? So I'm going to sit at the front of the bus. So, so then they, they, he go back, and they tell, they, they'd probably be getting, laughing about it. And then they'd send somebody else up, another veteran guy, to come up an hour later and say, Toddy, uh, I don't know if you guys they told you about Casey Jones. He's got the biggest head in the league. You you just keep your head up. This guy's gonna come from. I'm like, oh my god! This is my, this is my second game. I'm 16. I'm like, how come, how come I don't? How come I don't know who this Casey Jones guy is? Who is this guy? <laughs> so then they go out for the, you know, the, the first game. They go out and skate around and warm up. And then the guys are on the bench. They let me do a, a hard lap, of course. And they're pointing over in the corner. Well, Casey Jones, he was the old conductor of the of the train for the North Bay Centennials. He's the mascot. He's the mascot for the North Bay Centennials. So I, the guys are all standing on the bench laughing, pointing over in the corner. Casey Jones, well, he is like a blow-up doll. He's got like this big, large head and mustache. He's like the conductor of the train. And he's wobbling back and forth in the corner, and they're all laughing at Casey Jones. So that was my, that was my first game. That's the story I told during the, the first game on the air. So anyway, that, that's how I broke the ice. And then from there, I mean, the Sportsnet stuff, I'd known Jeff Merrick. Uh, you know, he's standby 90 back in the day. And, and he covered the, he was in Guadalajara.
golf when I played junior. So he called me out of the blue when Sportsnet signed the big 12-year deal and said, would you do some junior hockey? Sure. So I went down and interviewed, and, and that's how it happened. I mean, I, I didn't really, honestly, God, I didn't think I'd be behind the camera, and, and uh, that wasn't really my thing as a player. So, um, but I've enjoyed it. I really like, I like doing the junior stuff. I really do. And now that I'm getting to cover the Leafs, uh, you know, in studio, it's been uh, an eye-opener for me, too. And so I, I've, uh, yeah, I've jumped in with two feet. I enjoy coaching still, too, and I'm helping at the University of Windsor. But um, the, the media side of it's been, uh, been interesting, yes. Where do you see yourself more so, Todd, when everything shakes out for you? Do you see yourself behind the camera or on the camera more? Or do you see yourself uh, behind the bench, maybe uh, AHL, NHL, as you work your way through the ranks? I don't know, boys. I'm not getting any younger. You know? I'm not getting any prettier. Behind the camera. <laughs> so I, I might be doing some podcasting. That'd be the best of it. But hey, that's what the rest uh, of us I, guys do, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I love it. I love, I love listening. I, I was just listening to Duncan Keith on Spin Chicklets. Well, I mean, it's, it's great what they're doing. So, I, listen, I don't know. I, I like to coach. Like, I, I mean, I feel like I have, a, you know, covering junior hockey and then transitioning that into the pro game, a lot of those same players that I covered in 2013, 14, 15 in the OHL or at the Memorial Cup, I get, I'm getting to see now, and I, I know what they've done in the past. I know where they've come from, so I have a bit of an inside track having done junior hockey. So I think I'm, I'm pretty well prepared for, for the TV stuff, uh, especially doing these games. But I like to coach, and I, I mean, I'm not sure all my coaches would have thought I'd be a good coach either. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do enjoy it, and I, I really enjoy, you know, the skill development part of it and, and being on the ice and, and isolating, um, you know, what players need to, to work on. And, and so, um, and being behind the bench, um, I, did, I did that a little bit when I retired. I coached some junior hockey here locally, but the university level is a good level. Lots of players with pro potential who've either you know, come from the CHL or come from Tier 2 and and still have aspirations to make money and make a career of it. So it's a good level, and I, I've enjoyed it. Um, and so I, I would say, talk to me in 10 years, but when I'm not quite as pretty to look at, then maybe I'll be a better coach. <laughs> and then, you know what, either way, I think you're, you're bona fide, you know, good on the TV, good behind the bench, and obviously you're a great guy to talk to. Uh, I thank you very much for being so generous with your time today, Todd. I look forward to uh, talking to you hopefully down the line when the Leafs are a little deeper in the playoffs. But thank you so much for swinging by. Yeah. Anytime, boys. Good to talk to you, James and Kyle. Um, yeah, enjoy watching those deep games. And, and anytime you need me to come back on, you let me know. So as you heard, ladies and gentlemen, that was Todd Warner, Sportsnet analyst, and of course, former Toronto Maple Leaf, joining the Offside Podcast, talking about everything going into the Maple Leaf series, and of course, his career, some fun stories there. All right, as always, is me, James Roberts, saying thank you for listening to Offside, and I'll say goodbye for Kyle because he skipped out on me a little early. All right, take her easy.